Grace, mercy, and peace be to you from God our Father and from our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. I got to give this rich man credit. He does plenty of things wrong, but there is one thing, there's one thing that he does right. What he does wrong is obvious, of course. He is selfish, he is foolish, and he's unimaginative. I see that I don't have enough room to store all my things. Okay, guy, maybe we want to do an add-on. Maybe you need to get onto Zillow and look for some other place. No, I'm just going to straight up tear down my barns and then build bigger ones. Oh, what an unimaginative guy. There's plenty, I say, that he does wrong. But there's one thing that he does right. And the thing that he does right is this. Faced with all of these abounding blessings, he takes a moment to pause and to ask himself, what shall I do? He takes a moment to pause and to ask himself, in the face of all of those many blessings, what shall I do with all of these possessions that I have, that I've been given? Now, I say that that's a good thing and that I give him credit for that because I think for too many of us, we don't ever bother to do that. When it comes to our finances, when it comes to our possessions, we just kind of go along without ever pausing to think, what shall I do with these gifts that I have? We get stuck in those financial ruts and we just kind of putter along or maybe we're just reactionary. When things come up, we respond to them, but we don't actually stop and think, God, you have given all this to me. What shall I do with it? For so many of us, we fear the IRS and getting an audit, right? On lists of things that Americans fear. That's right up there at the top. And yet, how many of us fear that divine audit from God? Much more fearful still. And so I give credit to this rich man, even though his response is not right. And I think it gives us an occasion, in the story that Jesus tells, it gives us an occasion for us to think about as believers, how do we regard our possessions? How ought we regard these things that we have been given? And I want to offer a simple kind of classification or taxonomy of different approaches to possessions. There's one in particular that I want to commend to you, but I think there's some truth in the others as well. And the first of these the first approach to possessions is the one that we see in the story, in the parable, from the rich man himself. And in this respect, possessions are regarded as a castle, as a kind of unassailable fortress that provides security and protection. This is the way that the rich man regards his possessions. He says, okay, soul, he's speaking to himself, uh, now you have ample goods laid up. You've got all of these things, and so what can you do? Eat, drink, be merry. Forgetting how that line ends, right? For tomorrow we die. Be that as it may. He thinks, I've got my castle, I've got my refuge of all of my possessions. They provide me with the security I need in order to flourish. And we need to say, 
that there's some truth to this, right? Possessions do, of course, provide a modicum of security. I mean, if that weren't the case, why would Christians through the ages toil and strive in order to serve the poor, to clothe the naked, to care for the homeless? If possessions didn't actually provide some measure of security and help, then we wouldn't bother trying to help others who are in need, right? So there's some truth to what he is saying and this approach toward possessions, that they are a kind of castle or refuge. They do provide a measure of security, at least, and we all can recognize as much. But where does he go wrong? Where he goes wrong is when he takes this good gift of possessions and turns it into an ultimate gift, when he thinks that they are going to provide an eternal security. Martin Luther says this is the definition of a god, lowercase g. He says, a god is anything that you run to in time of need in which your soul takes refuge. God is anything that you run to in a time of need in which your soul takes refuge. Well, when you define it that way, you can see that there are no atheists in the world, right? Everyone is taking refuge in something. And Luther goes on to say, the most common God in the world is what the scriptures call mammon. That kind of personification of possessions. It's so tempting to derive to find your security and meaning in the stuff that you have. You think, so long as my 401k is strong and robust, then I'm going to be good. So long as I have that security system on my home, then I'll be safe. If the last year has taught us anything, or the last three years, it's that no matter how much you might think you have, it's not going to be a bulwark against calamity, against the sort of things that can happen in our world. It doesn't provide even temporal security, much less eternal security. Instead, what it provides or what it can create is what Jesus tells us. A covetous heart, which as the epistle said, is no less than idolatry. And so for us as believers, no, we don't regard our possessions as that unassailable castle. It's not a refuge that can withstand all else. But instead, as the hymn says, echoing our Lord's words, it is a castle built on sinking sand. It has a foundation that is crumbling. If that's where you seek your security, if that's where you look to to find your refuge, it's always going to fail you. If not in this life, then in the life to come. When you will hear those awful words from God saying, Fool, all these possessions that you have prepared, now your life is required of you, and whose will they be? No, we don't regard possessions as a castle. But some believers, in an earnest way, will go in the total opposite direction. Say, okay, my possessions aren't a castle, they aren't an eternal security, but maybe instead they're hazardous materials. They're hazmats, right? They are dangerous toxins and poisons that I need to flee from at all costs. I need to avoid possessions and money because it is inherently dangerous and evil. I don't want to have anything to do with it. And if we're being honest, the scriptures do talk this way. It can sound this way many times. When you're reading the Bible, you can get this impression that, yeah, money is, Jesus says, he says, you cannot serve two masters, right? You're going to serve either God or what? Money or, or mammon, right? There seems to be this kind of battle going on there, right? At the very essence of it. And so many believers through the ages have said, you know what? 
They're hazardous materials, materials. They're hazmats. I don't want to have anything to do with them. You think of, of St. Francis walking around in a burlap sack, refusing to own anything at all, just going around and begging for his bread. Still to this day, there are many beggars for the kingdom. And did not Jesus say, blessed are the poor, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven? I think it's understandable to regard possessions as hazardous materials, as things you don't want to have anything to do with, much more so than this idea that they are a castle or an unassailable refuge. But here, too, I think that there are serious shortcomings to that view. As much as I regard and really admire those who seek to live a life of simplicity and, and even poverty, I think all of us as believers ought to strive after simplicity, of being grateful and content for what we have. But if we really regard possessions and money as inherently evil, as dangerous in themselves, I think we fall into a trap. And that trap is at least twofold. On the one hand, if we regard money that way, and believers who have wealth, we're going to despise those folks and say, oh, you're not a true Christian because you're a person of means. But this is silly. Within the scriptures themselves, we see people, disciples of Jesus, followers of the Lord, who were precisely that. You think of Joseph of Arimathea. It says in the Gospels, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a rich man and a disciple. It says that in the same phrase, which puts the lie straight away to this idea that those are mutually exclusive. Joseph of Arimathea is the one who out of his own pocket provided the temporary tomb for our Lord. He didn't know it was going to be temporary, right? But even still, he used his gifts to be a blessing to others. We see this throughout the Gospels as well as the epistles as we're exhorted not to have no possessions, but to use them well. So on the one hand, there's this trap that if you regard possessions only as hazardous materials, as dangerous toxins, you look down on, ver on the very people whom God says, no, they too are disciples. But there's an even deeper issue there, which is all of these things are indeed gifts, good things. And if we are to despise them, we despise the God who gives them. Should our hearts cling to them? Should we take refuge in our bank accounts or in our possessions? No, it's idolatry, it's covetousness. But neither should we despise them. We ought to receive them with hearts of gratitude, recognizing that God is the giver of every good and every perfect gift, to thank him for that. So then we don't regard possessions as a, a castle, as an eternal security, but neither as hazardous materials that we should have nothing to do with. But instead, I, there's one more way, I think, that we ought to regard possessions. And this is where I think, as Christians, we especially ought to fall. And I was reflecting on this recently. I kind of had this moment of realization when, as I have so many of my best thoughts, I was walking around during the uh, uh, patio carnival over at Camp Arcadia. <clears throat> That's where I get some of my best thoughts over there. So many of you have participated in the patio carnival over there at camp, and it's a great time. And as you guys know, I've got four kids. My kids love to go to the patio carnival, and especially my youngest daughter, Ellie. And she is running around, and I'm, I'm telling you, she is after those tokens like nobody's business. Right? She's going to play every game. She's going to play it multiple times. She's going to even try to barter with the, the person giving the tokens and say, are you sure I shouldn't have one more for that? You know, she'll put on her cute little face. Okay, there you go. But I had this moment of realization as she was eagerly trying to get all of those tokens, as she was just a monger for the tokens, 
that they are of incredible worth and value for a five-year-old for that short, brief period of time. Because you get the tokens, then you can turn them in for incredible gifts, like those sticky hands that get you know, dirt on them and they're useless within about two minutes. Our possessions are like those tokens. It's not that they are of no value, but they are of a temporary and limited value. Does that make sense? During this lifetime in which we are living the patio carnival of life, if you will, remember every analogy breaks down somewhere. <laughs> God gives us these gifts for which we are thankful to receive them. And I also saw something beautiful during the patio carnival. The older kids who have suddenly realized that the jig is up and that if they hoard all of these tokens at their house after the patio carnival, they're not really worth a whole lot. I saw the older kids giving younger kids their tokens because, hey, I don't need all of these and I can bring joy and blessing to others. Isn't that what it is in our lives? God entrusts to us these gifts, these possessions for a time and we need them and they serve a limited value, but they're temporary. And notice in the parable, Jesus doesn't excoriate the rich man for being a sinner for all his possessions, although he may be that. What does he call him? A fool. He calls him a fool. Because even more than those possessions are toxic poisons, they're temporary gifts. And so to stockpile them as though you are going to have them forever, it's not merely sinful. It's stupid. <laughs> they're not going to last forever, y'all. Instead, Jesus says, strive to be rich toward God. See, we can't cling to those things eternally, but we can send them forward into heaven and be a blessing for those in our lives now and to serve and to honor God eternally. There was a book that became a movie a few years ago called The Big Short. And you heard of that one, The Big Short about all of these folks who were betting against the American housing market. Basically, to short a market is to recognize or to bet on its failure, that it's not going to last. And so they were able to accrue some upside by recognizing this thing is not going to stick around. Jesus has given us the ultimate insider tip, <laughs> the biggest short of all, that your possessions, your money, all the things of this life, they're not going to last but that in him and in his kingdom, you have eternal upside, unlimited growth potential, folks. It's the biggest short of all. So I want to close with this, to think about what does it look like for us to be rich toward God and to have a right attitude toward all of these possessions. When I think about that, I, I think of St. Helen as I've come to call her, Helen Cedarholm. And some of you have heard me share about Helen before. Helen passed away a couple of years ago at the age of 100. She wanted to make it to 100, she did, and then the Lord took her home. Helen had a hard life. She lost her dad when she was just a girl. This was during the Great Depression. And she likes to tell a story of how one day she and her mom were walking down the street and her mom says, you know what, girl? We can't even rub two dimes together. And they looked down and there was a dime. And they're like, now we can rub two dimes together. But still, they were poor and they were struggling. And yet they recognized they were blessed. 
As she would grow, Helen would be married and lose her husband. She would remarry and have that husband pass too. She would also lose a daughter. She had a very difficult, pain-filled life. But as I would go and visit Helen, I encountered a woman whose heart was not filled with resentment or regret, but instead with gratitude. And every time I would see her, every time I would visit her, she would ask a question not unlike the question that the rich man asks in this parable today. He asks, what shall I do? Which is a good question for us to ask. Helen did one better. As she would ask me and ask herself each and every day, who will help? Who will help me count all of these blessings that I've been given? Who will help me count all of these blessings that I've been given? That's the question that all of us ought to ask. Because all depends not on our possessions, but on our possessing God's abundant grace and blessing. All depends on the fact that Christ, the true rich man, expended everything in order to make you his own. He is the Lord of glory who has bought us. And so now, recognizing that all we have is a gift from God, that in the abundance of possessions there is no life, but in Christ is our life. Seeing all of that, let us ask like Helen did, who will help me count all these blessings? And let us even ask, as the rich man did, what shall I do? Amen. And may the peace of God that surpasses all understanding keep your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Amen. We stand to confess our faith.